0: Him we proclaim our unchanging ministry. Well, with many thanks to God for this honor of returning to this pulpit and to you dear people uh, to preach your 20th anniversary sermon, I am venturing to give you the blessing of a single verse which I think is both compact and comprehensive, namely Colossians one twenty-eight. And I hope that this single verse will bear the weight of the entire letter of Colossians. That's my hope for goal, that this people's renewing in your thanksgiving for the past will be a rededication to your future. It's an ambitious plan, so we need to pray. Dear God, I thank you that you have composed in your word a big story as our Creator King. In your wisdom, justice, and love, you have devised and enacted a unified, multifaceted plan to redeem, reconcile, reconquer, and recreate your rebel creatures transforming us into your trusted children into your glad and grateful services servants and into your beautiful bride see to this now we ask by your spirit and in Jesus name amen well by way of introduction i have three simple words we proclaim him. They're the first three words. And if you don't have your Bibles open to the book of Colossians, please do so and keep them there. We proclaim him. We. That means that uh, in the opening uh, verse of Colossians, just two people are mentioned, the Apostle Paul and Timothy. That's the Hello, welcome, as it were, of the of the letter. The goodbye letter uh, of of the epistle is in the seventh verse of the fourth chapter, and eight more names are mentioned uh, at that point. They are Paul and Timothy's co-laborers, co-ministers, workers together with him in the spreading of the gospel. They. Are a rather improbable, but nevertheless God-selected group: Tychicus, and Aristarchus, Epaphras, Onesimus, Mark, Justus, Luke, and Demas. Collectively, they are, as I said, Paul's co-laborers. They are the "we" of this letter. And I want to charge you right at the beginning that each of you by name be named co greeters in the Lord's name of God Himself, Jesus Himself, and to Desiring God, Community Church. We, we, secondly, proclaim. Proclaim is a, and the noun form of that, word is proclamation, and it means to broadcast from the housetops, as it were. Why? Because we have an official announcement that has come from no less than our Creator King. God, who has publicly declared that we say far and wide what he has revealed. That's the plain meaning of the other use of the word proclaim. In Colossians, in Colossians 1.23, the hope of the gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. The Colossian letters' key components of, of proclamation were a declaration, a declaration of our lips and of our lives, a walking, talking proclamation. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Colossians 2.6, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Colossians 4.5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And that walk means that we speak with a salty kind of uh, vocabulary. Gracious salt deposits are really all over this letter, uh, but particularly in one person. The salty speech deposits uh, that are everywhere find their highest and largest grade salt to be sprinkled on the, uh, as it were, the taste buds of our sentences is in the third word. We proclaim him. Nothing seasons and preserves better than Jesus Christ. What a difference To have stored in your minds and ready on the taste buds of your tongues to proclaim him who, according to Colossians 115 to 20, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for from him or by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. There it is, the simple and grand work of your personal lives and of this church's life together. For 20 years now, Desiring God Community Church has existed to gladly proclaim him. We Proclaim Him. Can you say it together with me? We proclaim Him. Amen. Amen. Not just a legacy, but a future, a great future together. It's not a solo per- performance It's or a freelance kind of thing. It's something that you do together as a body and together collectively with the other like-minded churches in this part of Charlotte. You have been set free to announce to all the captives near and far what uh, has been called freedom from the little kingdoms of self, freedom from slavery to whatever adored heart's idols stalk us and have possession, whether it's the idol of power, control, approval, or comfort. God has come in Christ to issue salvation histories, emancipation proclamation to all humanity and through his chosen ones to proclaim that we are no longer ourselves, but we belong to him, to him who is supreme, to him who is sufficient, Supreme over all the created order, because he is our maker, Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Supreme over the church, because he is our head. Sufficient because he is God with us in his incarnate person. Sufficient as God for us in his dying, substituting, uh, uh, atoning, and peacemaking work. Kids, when when I was four years old, I remember being so proud of my dad. It was the last day of my kindergarten class in California. And my dad came, and he made me so proud because he brought Hershey's candy bars for me and for everybody else in the class. Well, we were leaving that that day, later that day, to, to go back to Colorado where, where I was born and where I spent the rest of my growing up years. Kids, can you imagine a situation like that when your dad came into the public school and gave a gift to everybody? You, too, have a father in heaven you can boast about. <laughs> Even greater than my dad. When I grew up, I recognized that dad had plenty of faults, and I want to refer to him again, kids. So you listen to the for the next time, and I hope I don't forget to say it. Tune in because about the time I really needed a heavenly father, he showed up personally in my life. So, kids of all age, all ages, and again, the, the word says if you don't receive the kingdom of heaven like a child you'll never get in. So all of you children, all of us children who belong to God, let's proclaim him together. It's the centerpiece of everything worth knowing and sharing. So how did the apostle Paul actually go about proclaiming Christ according to what he says in this compact little verse, Colossians 1:28? He says Him we proclaim, warning everyone. Hmm, what a place to begin. Well, think, uh, I've already talked about little ones. Think about the little word, if. If. It's not hard to read the presence of this method in the Colossians letter. Namely, listen to its usage when the apostle put that tiny two-letter word, if, into these sentences. Christ has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death, if, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Colossians 1, and 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you still submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, according to mere human precepts and teachings. Colossians two twenty through 22. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. With that little word if God is putting a caution, a condition, a contingency, a challenge in front of his readers. He's warning that A is really true if B goes along with it. A is true, namely, those Christ has uh, reconciled to God prove it, B, by not shifting away from the hope of the gospel. A, those who have died to rules-keeping as their religion show it. B, by no longer living nervously or proudly on the do's and don'ts of mere human approval. A, those who have been raised with Christ make it obvious. B, by living above the world, not absorbed with it. Instead, absorbed with Christ and the things that are above. Personally specifically, intimately with Christ, where he is and where is Jesus now. He's at the right hand of God. And what has he done? He has hidden our lives with him in God. And what will he do? He will bring us along with him in glory when he returns. Each of these conditions are warnings suited and addressed to the particular threats that were on the Colossians uh, in that day. Deluded, captured, judged, disqualified. These are warning words. More direct than the if warnings are these four Corinthian corrections. That no one delude you with plausible arguments. They're all in chapter 2, this one verse 4. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions about food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And verses 18 and 19, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows into a growth that is from God. These warnings come because and are addressed against an unidentified influential visiting teacher or perhaps elitist group. They were threatening the infant church of that day. Whoever they were, their boast was not an outright denial of the gospel. What they espoused, however, was something more than uh, Paul had first taught Epaphroditus, more than what they were, had heard, and yet Paul made it very clear, listening to them means letting go of Christ. Whatever they sought, they sometimes sought with soft and persuasive language, and other times with heavy-handed insistence. They had improvements, <laughs> improvements on what the Corinthians had heard. These, inc- these improvements, as we've noted, sometimes a little bit of philosophical jargon, sometimes uh, b- more asceticism and uh, self-denial. Oh, throw in some some uh, mystical uh, visions as well. Improvements. That's, that's what you really need to wholly belong to, to Christ and and proceed with, uh, with growth in, into maturity. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? That's always the, Satan's way in our lives, either to softly persuade us with a kind of easy believe, believism and cheap grace, or to put us on the exhausting hamster wheel of performance. Do this, do that measure up, keep up, and uh, certainly keep up with us. Our good friends, the Puritans, took the warnings of Scripture very seriously. Some people would say that's all they heard from the Puritans. Listen to Thomas Manton. He calls the warnings God's threatenings. God's threatenings of judgment are the object of faith as much as the promise of his mercy. Every part of divine truth is worthy of trust and, rever- and reverence because it's the word of God. We read of faith in the promises, faith in the command. Now read faith in the threatenings. Faith is a loose presumption if it doesn't include the threats as well as the promises. In all right belief, there is a mixture. Men that look only to be honeyed and oiled with grace and feasted with love mistake the nature of God and the manner of his dealings in the world. God is just as well as merciful. We are bound to believe that God will condemn the obstinate as well as save the penitent. Threatenings are necessary. First, to beget humility for past sins. In threatenings, we see the deserts of sin. You will never understand how displeasing things are to God till you read the curses. Then your soul will say, oh, what have I done? We deserve to be cast into hell, but grace has saved us. Our hearts will be enlarged in praises and thanksgivings to God that he has delivered you from the lowest hell. When we think of the evil of sin, we will bless God for Jesus Christ. No condemnation. Number two, threatenings make us vigilant and watchful. When we see the danger, we shall not be so secure. When a bird sees the snare, he will not venture upon the bait. So the soul will be more careful and will not dally with sin. And third, threatenings check indulgence to carnal pleasure. Pleasure and delight are dearly bought if they threaten the soul. There is no way to counterbalance delight but by fear, to consider the wrath of God that shall come upon sinners. Take a view of the land of darkness, As well as the land of promise. Was it a warning, perhaps, in your life? Or was it a promise that uh, God used, or a mixture of the two, to um, awaken you to Himself? Well, I dare say, whatever it was, God holds in His hands both at His disposal, both to sustain you to the end. And uh, to put in you, as he said uh, in the prophet Ezekiel, "The fear of me, lest you depart from me." And of course, there's another verse that we could make reference to here. you probably haven't memorized. Second uh, Timothy 3:16. We know from that text that all scripture is breathed out by God. And there is the positive. It's profitable, it says, for teaching and for training in righteousness. And it's profitable negatively for reproof and correction. Training in righteousness, proof and correction. Positive Negative. Which of those is profitable? All of them. All of them. (laughs) So let's hasten on to the profitability of this second word. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Paul immediately, when he starts uh, telling us in um, Colossians... Immediately turns to the value of the teaching ministry. In the fifth verse of the first chapter, he says these, these words, um, of this you, excuse me, just five, yeah, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And then again in the sixth verse, right next door, since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. And finally in verse 7. Three verses in a row. Just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Hear, understand, learn. These are the person-to-person teaching means for saving people and building churches. True. True. It was true for those ancient Colossians, and it's true for you and me today. Paul taught it to Epaphras, who went back home to uh, Colossae and spread the word among his family and his friends. And those who heard and understood and believed were organized into a church, a new church plant in the Lycus Valley, 120 miles along a major trade drought from the major city of Ephesus. But look further in chapter 1 to what Paul wrote from his prison 1,300 miles away in Rome from Colossae. Look at the end of verse 24 in chapter 1 straight into our preaching text today. For the sake of his, of Christ's body, that is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may p- present everyone mature in Christ. With his letter to this little church he had never gone to and never would go to, pa- Paul nevertheless rejoiced in broadcasting a mystery. The mystery is a word he uses twice in these words that we just referred, referred to. It's a way for Paul to distinguish himself again from these false teachers. These, these ones who, unlike him, Paul, Paul said, I didn't choose this ministry. God gave it to me as opposed to the false teachers who were self-appointed. I didn't imagine this ministry, it was revealed to me from God. As opposed to the false teachers whose notions were were filled with mere human tradition, mere human visions and, and ideas. I didn't withhold this, what God had revealed. I've revealed it to everyone. I want, I'm conferring it on you as opposed to the false teachers whose notion was no 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 this this is only for a few this is only for the special ones who can receive our higher knowledge our improved revelations so paul sets himself against the mystery teaching with <laughs> the mystery of the gospel the mystery of of an expression that should take hold of us with great power, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Those those expressions themselves helped to set apart what Paul was was sharing from the the supposed superior lessons and message uh, that were in the world then, and in some counterfeit ways are still with us today. Christ in you. Who is this Christ? He is the Christ revealed in the, in the great Christology of the first chapter. <laughs> the, the, the one who is the image of the invisible God, who is the head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. But then in the second chapter, amplified by Christ crucified. Christ crucified at the in that in that in the middle of the of the second chapter, I believe the 14th verse, it says that the legal uh, debt that I owe to God, where is that debt now? God took that legal debt and nailed it to the cross. And as Horatio Spafford said, Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. So, the great Christology of the first chapter, the, the crucified Savior of the second chapter, And the returning Lord of the third chapter. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. When Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. Lord, haste the day when my faith, your faith, our faith will be sight. The, uh, how does it go? The clouds will, will roll back, be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. Even so, say it, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. There's the heart of the gospel. There's the the very essence of what it means. Christ in us, this Christ, the great Christ, the crucified Christ, the coming again Christ. Christ in in you, the hope of glory. The Christ we possess right now is that great Christ. But we don't have all of him yet, do we? (laughs) It would be wrong for us to suppose and wrong for the false prophets, whoever they might be, to say, you can have sinless perfection in this life. Your heart can be full of love. Without impediment. Any honest Christian, any honest believer in Jesus knows it's not true for me yet. It's not. But it will be someday. We know we are not free from the, we are free from what? The penalty of sin. That's been taken away at the cross. But we're not free from its power. But the day is coming, isn't it, when Jesus comes back and we'll be free from even the presence of sin. It's coming. It's a hope. Christ in us, to be sure, our hope of glory. The very highest relationship you can have with the great God through Jesus Christ is already yours in the Lord Jesus. Already but not yet all, but someday all, all will in fact be ours. Oh, hasten that day. Paul turns in, in his letters, almost all of them, I think, yes, all of them, from teaching these doctrinal things, warnings and teachings, positive and negative, and yet the positive is positive as well. We dare not take the warnings as if they belong to somebody else. They, belong to, they are there for you and me. The person who refuses to take the warnings seriously is much in danger. Who, who are the ones who, who disregard the warnings of the Scripture? Unbelievers. Or shallow believers. Mm-mm. No. When the Holy Spirit is in us and we read a warning in the Scripture, as Manton told us before, there is value. That is a positive teaching in the Word as well. So in the warnings as well in the teachings. And that's what we've we've looked at here so far that Paul is saying. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And of course the wisdom of God so personalized, so incarnate, so present with us in Jesus Christ. He turns now from making the word of God fully known by its warnings and its promises to its practical application in every one of his letters. And he does it here in Colossians 1.28. Having warned everyone, having taught everyone, now it is his goal for that purpose to present Everyone mature in Christ. In other words, he's, he's going to. We're at the so what section of what uh, Paul has to say in Colossians, and what he has to say particularly in Colossians 1.28. So what? What are the practical obediences? There are five of them that he lists at the second half of Colossians. They are not multiple choice. They are an integrated whole. He doesn't say that you and I can pick one of the five. The five are Christ Himself, obedience to Jesus Himself, and then our relationship to the church, and then our relationship to our families, and then our relationship to our work, and finally to outsiders. Which of them shall we choose? All five. All five. You, you don't get the option of saying, eh, kind of like that one, but I'm going to let the other one go. We all know the testimony of people whose, well, it's a sad negative testimony. They say yes to one, but don't prove it by authentically living in one or a number of the other ones. What are the five? Well, of course, the first is Christ himself. Pay attention first and foremost. That's the foundation for all the others, to be sure, and that's why Paul begins there. If you've been raised with Christ, seek, and there are four, what are there, four uh, imperatives. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above. Put to death the things that are above. And what's the fourth one? Let's look. Colossians 3. I disobeyed my own command. Didn't have my Bible open to, that, to it. And in the little print it says here, Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above. Put to death what is earthly in you, and put away all that is of the old life. There they are. Those are the things that deal directly with our relationship with Jesus. Why why should we do those things? Set our minds on the things that are above? Because that's where Christ is. Why should we uh, seek the things that are above again? That's where Christ is. Why should we, not, uh, why should we put away the, the, the things of this, of this world? Because we have died to them. Don't go back to, to, to living in those ways. Now, secondly, the apostle moves from Christ to the church. Our relationship to the church, the local church, you, Desiring God Community Church. It may seem, is that the order? People who say, I love Jesus Christ, I just don't have anything to do or much to do or any more to do with the church. Well, they may be saved, but they are not strong in the Lord. It's pretty easy to diagnose a person's spiritual direction in life by whether or not, having said they are in allegiance to, uh, to the head, whether they have allegiance to, to his body. But Paul, Paul goes into great detail about the value and the necessity of belonging in the local church. He, he says in this, in this transition from dealing directly with Christ to dealing with the church that we bear the chosen names of the Old Testament people of God. We're God's beloved, his chosen ones. We, we have the privilege of l- living according to a, a brand new m- mor- moral strength, forgiving one another, being patient with, an, with one another. It's all mentioned right there in Colossians 4. We live in a, in a fellowship, a fellowship where all of the old barriers, the divisive barriers that keep men apart, men and women apart, are gone. They're done away with at the cross. One of the testimonies last night was of a man and a woman from different castes in India. One of them a Catholic, one of them from a Hindu background. In other words... <laughs> Not the kind of couple that were likely to succeed. Except where? In Christ. (laughs) And in the fellowship of his people. So unity among the people of God across all kinds of barriers where there's neither slave nor free, barbarian or Scythian or slave, male or female, all are one together in Christ. The church, the church is the, 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 the breeding ground, as it were, for higher, higher thoughts, higher helps, greater, greater uh, joy with other people than, than we would otherwise have. And now, third, he moves to the family. Christ himself, our relation to him, our relationship to the church, and then to the family. Frankly, I think one of the reasons to have the church second is that you can have in the family something you may not have in your own kinship family. You may not have it. Nevertheless, having Christ, being in the fellowship of his people, you have for yourself resource for the upbuilding of your family. Now comes into play I guess something that's already we could say was a- already been in play. It's called but it's it's especially important to hear where the family is concerned. It's called living by the principle of subordination. That sounds complicated. Well, think of it in terms of the Trinity itself. Though God the Father and God the Son are equal in all regards, nevertheless, the Son voluntarily subordinates himself to his Father, and that principle will now operate in the family. Though the wife is a co-heir and equal in all things with her husband, she nevertheless submits to her husband, as is pleasing to the Lord. The, the, the children gladly, well, maybe sometimes not so gladly, <laughs> subordinate themselves in obedience to their parents. And we're going to see it at work when we get into the work world as well. Kids, when I was maybe 13 or 14, my favorite person perhaps in the whole world was my cousin, about three or four years older than me. Maybe I wasn't even 13 yet. I was just a little squirt. (laughs) But Cousin Del, he was about 14 or 15, and he treated me like I was his equal. He did everything with me. He included me. We were lying together uh, in bed for a, a sleepover one night, and Dell said something to me that I remember vividly. He said, I wish I had a dad like yours. I'd forgotten what a great dad I had. Kids, do, do you look up to a cousin or somebody at school? I don't know who it might be. Kids, is there somebody like that? But you, you say, man, there's, I, just, I just love hanging out with that person. I I feel like an equal even though you know you're not. And then that somebody that somebody says, "I wish I had a dad like yours." Well, I do have a dad like that. He is my heavenly father. And that's the one, that's the one. Maybe if he's really that that older peer in your life, if that that guy or that gal points you to to our Father who is in heaven. Then you really do have somebody you want to grow up to be like. God bless you in that. It was revolutionary for Paul to say what he said about the Christian family. The Christian family today, a well-ordered family, is hugely under attack in the church, and almost completely has crumbled. In the culture. Therefore, Paul has very good reason for giving guidelines for how we help bring our brokenness and the brokenness of our marriages under the subordinating order of Christ and our disobedience and and brokenness as children under the appropriate authority. Of our parents, men in particular, listen, you, you have two particular cautions: Do not be harsh with your wife. Do not provoke your children. <laughs> Man work under the subordinating and, and authoritative strength of Christ. Bear that, bear that in mind. This is in the fear of the Lord, pleasing to the Lord. Just as revolutionary is what Paul said about the waking hours of our lives as adults, namely our working hours. Same principle of of uh, subordination, and he mentions slaves first. Subordinate yourself uh, under under your master, and masters don't don't take this for granted. I am the master. Jesus, can, Jesus says, I'm the, I'm the master whom all of you serve. And you slaves, don't be cheating your master out of the work that is your role to fulfill. Owners, owners, don't shortchange your, your slaves, your servants. Because God will hold you account." I think of it the fifth chapter of James, where the same kind of terrible warning is given to the to the wealthy to the rich God will, will both punish and reward, so on both sides of the labor and uh, and, and ownership level, in the slave and master, uh, in the working poor uh, culture of of the first century and in the 21st century today. Finally, he moves to outsiders. That's what he calls them. And we have two obligations with regard to outsiders. Number one, talk to God about them. Pray for them. You are an uh, intercessor on the mission field that God has placed you in. Proximity implies responsibility. (laughs) You are there on purpose, whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's in your school, whether it's in the gym you go to or the shopping center that you frequent, or sports, or whatever it is, you are placed there to pray for those that you gently and uh, persuasively and constantly are seeking to share the good news with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ the lost the outsiders in the world secondly not only talking to God about them the more and more you know them the more intimately you can pray into their lives you can you are to talk to them about God. Both of those things. Walk wisely. Speak saltily (laughs) to them. Pay attention to them. And when the opportunity arises, when the curiosity arises, I don't think it's a mistake that he doesn't start talking about witnessing to others until he's talked about an integrated and mature life in all the other areas so that they see you See that you have a relationship with God. See that you go to a gospel church. See that your family is oriented around the kingdom and around Christ. And that in the workplace, you do a day's work and more for an honest day's pay. That they see that, and that makes them curious. So that you can engage in something that we can call responsive evangelism. Some of the people in this church, the pastors and the elders, they can do proclamation in a much more teaching, direct kind of way that um, that, that maybe suits them to for us to bring people to so that they can hear the gospel. We, you, in the pew, y- you have a less pressured kind of situation. In one sense, you don't you don't have to. To push the gospel necessarily aggressively in, into these situations, you just need to have the kind of life that makes people curious, that makes people ask you. And then when when you don't have the answer, you can go to one of these elders, one of these wise guys <laughs> here at the church, and say, "Give me some resources. What can I say?" And in that and in that way, it it I hope in in one sense, it looks to me like that's the way Paul is describing it here, and the same way that Peter describes it in, uh, in, in 2 Peter. Well, there they are. Those are the, the five applications that, uh, that we have, the so what's. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone Mature in Christ. Let's pray.